I wonder if you've ever considered the intricate connection between the way that humanity and its civilization has evolved in the world, along with observations of how life works and how the stars work, how the constellations work, in the shaping and creation of myth. Welcome to the Alchemical Mind. This is the first episode of the Symbology 101 series. This is actually a Patreon-exclusive series, so if you want to get more episodes, by all means, go to patreon.com slash thealchemicalmind to begin getting these. The next episode will actually involve the cult of Mithras in modern popular culture, so I'll be talking about the HBO series Raised by Wolves and how that's influenced by the cult of Mithras. Should be a fascinating episode. But I wanted to put this first one out so you guys can get an idea of the kinds of topics that I want to dive into in Symbology 101, which are very closely related to the types of topics that we usually dive into on the podcast, but more from a practical and sometimes often historical sense, because we often forget when doing you know, any kind of self-development work or spiritual philosophical work to actually dive into where the ideas behind these stories come from. So for the first episode of Symbology 101, I will actually be discussing the sacred cow or the sacred bull. Uh, either one, they're interchangeable depending on the culture. And how closely related it is to a lot of the myths that we know and love, even though you may not even be any familiar with any of them. And of course, this has to do a lot with the way that Western culture has developed over the last several thousand years, and it's, of course, very much influenced by the Indo-European culture, which we know very little about. Uh, I am familiar with a lot of the uh, root etymology of words, right? So a lot of Western languages have uh, developed from Indo-European roots. So you have, uh, you know, various Indian languages, uh, Iranian, uh, English, Germanic were, uh, languages, uh, all the Romance languages like Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, etc., uh, the Germanic languages, uh, including, you know, all the way back to uh, Norse languages, etc. So it's very important to, if you want to understand where these myths come from, to understand as much as you can about what we know about what these kind of early people were like and what their language was like and what their culture was like. And you can really get a feel for the way that mythology develops over time as a result of just the way that we form culture. This is something that very few people really dive into. They often just want to you know, read books and do that kind of work. But uh, to really understand it, you kind of have to go quite a bit further back. And of course, one of the most important symbols for all of Indo-European derived cultures is the idea of the sacred cow, the sacred bull. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, one of the most interesting bits about this is how the stars influence our mythology. And this is a field called astrotheology. You can look it up. There's tons of great information about astrotheology and how myths arise from our observations of the stars. In fact, I've seen some really compelling cases about the Old Testament and the Bible, for example, being pure allegory for the movements of stars and constellations in the sky. And of course, if you're familiar with Kabbalah, which we'll get to uh, in the near future, you'll be familiar with this concept as well. Because for the Kabbalists, the the way that their alphabet, the, the Hebrew alphabet, rose was from the observation of the stars. And so you, you literally create magic by observing the stars and joining different groups of stars and constellations together uh, to form consonants. 
and then the travel of the planets across the skies uh, symbolize the vowels of the language. And so it literally quite becomes magic to observe the stars. You can create stories about world creation by watching the movement of the stars. And I think that's a fascinating topic that we will 100% be getting into. I know some of you have sent me some uh, really interesting videos about uh, the influence of language creation in, in, uh, in Kabbalah, because as I mentioned many, many times, I love language, I love linguistics. And uh, that's why I put so much focus on the idea of language and symbology in these episodes. In every single episode, I always talk about language and symbology and it's important in order to understand the true meaning of something and not just the meaning given in the text. That's very easy to do it that way. Of course, some of you are more invested in knowing more things, so you're more familiar with different kinds of sacred cow symbology. I'm sure uh, many people listening are very familiar with, for example, uh, Egyptian stories of sacred cows. You have various goddesses that uh, have sacred cow imagery, and these include you know, goddesses like Hathor and Isis, which uh, oftentimes are depicted with these horned crowns, oftentimes having a the symbol of the sun within it. And that's kind of what lies at the core of many of these myths, because it seems if you follow some of the astrotheology ideas, uh, you may see that uh, many people feel like people change the mythology surrounding their culture based on when the sun rises according to the stars. So in today's episode of The Sacred Cow, there's going to be a lot of cow symbology, of course, but of course, also symbology of the twins, because now we're connecting the constellations of Taurus, the cow, sacred cow, and the constellation of Gemini, the sacred twins, the primordial twins. And these, of course, if you follow astrology, then you may be familiar that they are kind of following ages. So you have Gemini, and then you move into Taurus, and then you move into Aries. And so that's why you see a lot of stories, sometimes the older stories involving twins. You see a lot of stories of cow goddesses, golden calves, things like that. And then you begin to see things uh, change a little bit in talking about the worship of the ram and different ideology and, and words that arise as a result of ram worship. Because the key thing here to remember is a lot of these myths, a lot of what we know today as written history, because, of course, before a certain period of time, we don't have any written history. It would just be oral tradition. And some of these oral traditions survive into succeeding ages. And that's what we see with the stories of Gemini and Leo and, and all kinds of things. Now, the key thing to remember, of course, is that during the early Bronze Age, which is where we see a lot of cultural development in at least the Northern Hemisphere. And we're going to focus on the Northern Hemisphere because, of course, Indo-European culture arises in the Northern Hemisphere. And these constellations that we see are seen in the Northern Hemisphere. The, the procession would be slightly different if you were viewing it from the Southern Hemisphere. And through the magic of history, there really aren't any cultures that develop in the Southern Hemisphere that uh, expand in such a way as Indo-European culture does. Because, you know, Indo-European culture begins, say, roughly around the area of the Black Sea and moves out towards the east into India and into the west into Europe. And then, of course, you get into modern history where you have European conquest of the New World, Africa, the Far East, etc. 
Now, during the Bronze Age, the sun would come out during the spring equinox in the constellation of Taurus. And so this is why we have all these different traditions that revere the cow, because regardless of whether these cultures followed a solar or lunar calendar, some of them had both. And I think the, the study of how calendars are created is actually really quite fascinating. I don't think I'll ever actually discuss it on the podcast, but I do urge you to go and do some research on how calendars work and how they arise. And what's more interesting really is when you begin to have cultures with dual calendars, where you have kind of an everyday calendar that's a solar calendar, and then you have these uh, priestly calendars following lunar cycles. And of course, that also relates a lot to oral and written tradition, because in oral cultures, you generally have more of a feminine aspect to the goddess figure. And in more settled and therefore more warlike cultures, you often see the sun as becoming the central aspect of the mythology. And, you know, whatever way that evolves into, right? It doesn't have to actually be the sun, as in, you know, the Mithraic cults, you have the Sol Invictus, the the invisible sun. You have various solar uh, deities in, in Egypt, for example, like Ra, etc., but uh, these evolve into other things, right? They evolve into things like Odin and Zeus and gods that we may be a little more familiar with. Even if these envelop aspects of other deities, in particular storm deities, water deities. And these also arise in some of these myths of the sacred cow and the twins. So we're going to dive into a little bit of that today. It's going to be a little bit of a shorter episode than most, I would say, but it should give you a good idea of what this series is kind of like, because I think it's important to understand some of these things so you don't feel so tied down to thinking things at face value. Because regardless of how we may feel sometimes about the ancients, maybe some of us feel like, oh, what do the ancients know? Obviously, some of us feel the opposite. Some of us feel like the ancients knew too much. They were way smarter than we were. And even then, you can get into problems. But see, all these things arise from pure observation, from pure existence. And this is constantly a topic of the podcast in learning to drop your opinions and just simply learn to exist. This is why the ancients had so much knowledge, because they knew how to exist in the world. And we have kind of lost all that through the advancement of technology and culture. Now, of course, in many ways, this episode is also kind of a, a backdoor entrance into the discussion on Zoroastrianism that we're going to start having uh, in the next episode, as a matter of fact. Unless you're a patron, if you're a patron, you'll get the Cult of Mithras first. So what I wanted to do really is uh, begin kind of with something that we may be more familiar with, how the Hindu culture celebrates the cow, because I think that's something that many people will be familiar with. Most people know that for the Hindus, they don't believe in eating meat. And there's some interesting things that arise out of that and why that's the case. So we're going to kind of start in India, move our way down to the west into Celtic culture. We're going to talk a little bit about Greek culture, Roman culture, which will tie into Mithras, into the Germanic culture. And then we're going to kind of go back into Iran and talk a little bit about how this influenced Zoroastrian religion and culture, because that's also important. Now, as I mentioned, for Hindus, the idea of eating meat is kind of uh, unholy. It makes you unclean. And this wasn't always the case. In fact, if you ever read the Vedas, you'll see that there is ritual sacrifice of cattle in the Vedas. And at some point, this ceased to be the case. Generally, the accepted 
reason for this being the case is when Ashoka became emperor of the area and uh, had his kingdom there, Ashoka was kind of very much influenced by the Buddhist. He was a convert to Buddhism. This happened roughly around the uh, second or third century BC. And of course, the Buddhists don't believe in eating meat. Uh, for the most part, they're fairly strict vegetarians. There are some reasons that uh, you're allowed to eat meat, but for the most part, uh, Buddhists, because of their ideology, do not eat animal products. They only eat plants. And so as a result of this, this whole idea of cow sacrifice, cattle sacrifice, as discussed in the early Vedas, was kind of replaced, and the cow was held up in a special place as kind of the vehicle of the god Shiva. And of course, if you're vaguely familiar with Hinduism, you might be familiar with Shiva. You have this whole idea of the god of creation, right, death and destruction, and that's a, a important myth that arises in many different traditions, not so much through Shiva, but this idea of life arising out of death. And this will be a key aspect of the Zoroastrian mythology when we get to how the primeval cow relates to that particular culture. Now, the key thing to remember is that even early on within the Vedas, even though you still had this cattle sacrifice, you didn't often eat the cow. Because you see, part of the thing was the ritual of sacrificing the cow. And, you know, if you're into the work of Gary Hancock and these other guys, for example, you may be familiar with what that can allude to, right? There's this whole idea of the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis where a comet or an asteroid or some heavenly body crashed into Earth and caused a lot of destruction. This is also interesting in terms of Zoroastrian myth, and we'll get to that when we talk about the Zendavesta, because there's a, an interesting twist on flood mythology in there that uh, I think very much pertains to the idea of the Younger Dryas hypothesis. And this was not so much a flood, but uh, kind of an ice age. And uh, that's interesting because this leads us to believe that maybe this is a remnant of an older oral tradition. So there could have been a flood, of course, at some point, but maybe this culture is stemming from something previous, some remnant of an ice age civilization. And of course, that also makes sense. There's been a lot of work done on certain cultures maybe having arisen during the age of Leo, which would put it back several thousand years further back. Each age is roughly, you know, about 2,100 years or so, if you look at the way the constellations move across the sky. So always remember these things as you begin analyzing mythology so you can really understand what these things are about. Now, as I mentioned, meat could only be eaten when meat was the remnant of a sacrifice. So you couldn't be like, oh, I'm hungry today, let me go and slaughter a cow and uh, grill up some steaks. That would not be allowed. Because see, then you wouldn't be honoring your ancestors, you wouldn't be honoring this long-held tradition. And the tradition arises when we get to the Zoroastrian element of the story. This is actually a common element that we see in a lot of other cultures, and I'll talk about that again when we get to Greek and Rome. But what's interesting is that some of this kind of changed as well when we enter the Kali Yuga, which... If you're into astrology and things like that, you may be familiar with. You may know we're kind of in the Kali Yuga now. And there's some interesting tidbits written in the Vedas and subsequent texts that kind of try to interpret the Vedas in that in the time of the Brahmins, of this ancient culture that knew how to use magic in terms of words and create spells, literal spells, the Brahmins were able to sacrifice the cattle because they had spells to resurrect the cattle. So they would kill an old cow and then perform a magic spell, 
and then the, the cow would be resurrected back into life as a young cow. Of course, there's a lot of very interesting ideas and metaphors here in terms of the cycle of the stars across the heavens. So you can, of course, read it in that direction. But that's something important to remember. And so, of course, these magic spells are no longer allowed to be said or taught to others. I don't even know if anyone knows how to perform these spells anymore because in the Kali Yuga, you're kind of in a, a lower age of consciousness and therefore you don't have the power to perform these rituals properly. Now, that's really interesting to remember because, of course, this gets into many other New Agey type ideas. And, of course, one thing to remember that's very important is that Indo-European culture arose in Asia but spread all throughout the northern world, down into, as I said, India and into the west, into Greece and Rome and all these areas. So even though we oftentimes see these cultures as being very different, and of course they are, but they all arise from a common kernel. And there's some really interesting research about, uh, you know, uh, I was just talking to, I believe it was on, on Mike and Maurice's Mindscape, they were talking about uh, some of these cultures, and I mentioned the Tuatha de Danan, this, uh, this mythological race of super beings that came from the north and settled in in Ireland, in the Celtic countries, and how a lot of that seems very similar to, uh, for example, things that we get in Germanic and Norse mythology, the Aesir, where Odin and Thor and all those gods come from, and they all seem to point to a common ancestor somewhere down in the Black Sea area. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting genealogical and historical studies on that as well, of course, linguistic ties, because many of these are Indo-European languages. And when you begin to look at etymologies of words, you see how these words evolve, you end up seeing some of these things. So even the Greeks, very early on especially, had this idea of ritual cattle sacrifice, of sacrificing the sacred cow. And you see this in uh, Hober, in which the cattle was sacrificed and the legs and the fat actually were sacrificed to the gods and then everything else could be eaten. Now, I find that kind of interesting. Maybe it's because Greece is kind of a more temperate climate. Uh, but, you know, if this were a ritual that developed in a more frigid temp uh, environment, you would actually have them eat the fat as well. So you do see this in, in Homer. You see this in Virgil as well. Virgil talks about in the Aeneid this uh, the sacrifice that was done with cattle in which uh, wine was poured over the calves and then the priestess would come pluck hairs from the cow's forehead and burn those as a sacrifice and then burn the cattle themselves and then whatever was left the blood was actually collected uh, as a result and then that was used in other rituals uh, including interestingly in some text into the creation of things like the Kikion, this hallucinogenic brew, I guess you could say, that's uh, been been very highly buzzed around lately because of the new book by uh, Marescu. So that's uh, interesting to remember these kind of things. And of course, some of these rituals persist into other cultures kind of in a different fashion. Uh, I haven't talked too much about the Spartans, but the Spartans had a very interesting ideology. And uh, maybe I'll do a an episode of Symbology 101 on Spartan culture because the Spartans had famously, uh, to the disgust of much of the quote-unquote civilized world at the time, they very famously oftentimes only ate this uh, black broth, which was a soup made from pig's blood. 
And of course, there's some callbacks to this idea of the sacred calf sacrifice uh, with a different animal, sure, but uh, there's some callbacks in terms of the, the way that the culture develops because of this blood brew. And in, in many regards, you can say that this maybe relates back to some of these ideas of cattle sacrifice. Uh, in fact, in, in African cultures, and of course, African cultures don't really have any Indo-European influence until, say, the Roman Empire shows up in Northern Africa or, you know, maybe into the, the age of discovery when Europeans begin colonizing various African countries. But uh, there's some, some interesting cultural similarities in terms of the sacred cow, uh, in particular with tribes that are cattle herdsmen. And oftentimes you'll, you'll see, in fact, you can watch videos on this where they're very nomadic tribes, and so they're not growing crops or anything like that. And sometimes the only thing that you can eat is cow's blood. And so they, as they're walking their cows, they just cut a little slit in the cow, put a cup underneath it, and they can drink the blood because all the nourishment is in the blood. Now, of course, there's myth metaphorical repercussions to drinking blood, but uh, quite literally, the the nourishment of the animal lives in the blood because that's how it's transported throughout the body. And it's really interesting to think that you know, even the ancients knew this kind of thing, right? We often think of them as uh, not as civilized, not as knowledgeable, maybe uh, very superstitious, but there's a reason why these things arise. Superstition isn't just pure superstition. There is actual science behind some of these belief systems. Now, this idea that uh, Virgil talks about, about pouring wine on the calves before doing the sacrifice, is, uh, is apparent in, for example, the cult of Hera, Hera being the wife of Zeus, the, the prominent... Greek god, the storm god, and Hera has a very interesting name, Buapis, and that means oxide, ox-eyed. I should <laughs> say that properly. Uh, not oxide, as in a molecule of oxygen, but having the eye of an ox, or sometimes she is represented as having the head of an ox. And of course, again, this is a callback to this Egyptian culture, these, these cults of uh, Isis and Hathor, which uh, arise during various different times of Egyptian culture, uh, because there's some interesting also genealogical similarities between that Egyptian culture and some of these Indo-European civilizations. Uh, again, that's kind of contested sometimes. Some people love the idea of it being uh, kind of more, uh, at least initially, a purely African culture, but there does seem to be some interesting studies and information that maybe these were not necessarily Indo-European, but maybe at least very much influenced because the world was a little bit smaller back then than it is now. Now, the interesting thing about Hera, of course, is that there's other symbology surrounding her, including the lion, which we've mentioned previously, and the peacock, which used to be a constellation. And uh, there's there's only, I believe, one culture that uh, still worships or, or at least has imagery of the god or goddess as a peacock, and uh, we will get into that in the near future, uh, but that might seem to be a remnant of this idea of a sacred goddess coming from the sacred cow. And uh, of course, Hera is also connected to the pomegranate and the poppy seed, two very interesting things, pomegranate being a, an obvious uh, symbol of fertility because the large amount of fruit and seed that lies inside the fruit, uh, but also there's a, a couple interesting sacred geometry aspects to the pomegranate. And poppy seed, of course, makes sense because that's how you get opium. And we know that, at least we're coming to know, that uh, all 
or at least most of these civilizations had some sort of psychedelic brew that they used in terms of their ritual, whether it's part of an everyday thing or as part of some mystery school uh, like the Mithraics, the Bacchic schools, the Cult of Dionysus, the Eleusian mysteries, and any of these other things that we're somewhat familiar with today. And of course, the Celts are also kind of an Indo-European group. There's some intermingling with other groups that existed in Europe previously, uh, particularly coming out of the Iberian Peninsula, uh, what we would today consider Portugal and Spain. Uh, many of those people are no longer around. Uh, you know, there's some studies about maybe the Basque people kind of being uh, part of this original group. And that's interesting to me because on my mom's side of the family, we, uh, we do have uh, Basque ancestry, so that's always been interesting to me as well. But the Druids were a, or the Celts rather, were kind of an Indo-European uh, culture that arrived in, in Ireland and, and the surrounding area very early on in the Bronze Age, maybe even before that. And the Druids had uh, an interesting ritual involving the sacred cow as well. So I'm going to read this. Uh, this is actually from Pliny the Elder, who was, of course, historian of the era. Uh, very early on in uh, in modern times, and he talks about the the druids doing this the sacrifice involving very interestingly things like the mistletoe, which is important because you know Christmas is coming up, and I will be doing uh, at least one maybe two episodes on the symbology of Christmas, and uh, you'll you'll get to see some of these things as we dive into the cult of Mithras and Zoroastrianism as well. Uh, talking about the Phrygian cap, for example. So Pliny says, The Druids, that is what they call their magicians, hold nothing more sacred than the mistletoe, and on a tree in which it is growing, provided it is Valonia oak, mistletoe is rare, and when found it is gathered with great ceremony, and particularly on the sixth day of the moon, hailing the moon in a native word that means healing all things, they prepare a ritual sacrifice and banquet beneath a tree, and bring up two white bulls whose horns are bound for the first time on this occasion, a priest arrayed on white vestments climbs the tree and with a golden sickle, again another very important symbol, the sickle, uh, not just for solar traditions but lunar traditions as well, cuts down the mistletoe which is caught in a white cloak. Then finally they kill the victims, meaning the bulls, praying to a god to render his gift propitious to those on whom he has bestowed it. They believe that mistletoe given in drink will impart fertility to any animal that is barren and that it is an antidote to all poisons. Now, I'm sure there's some long forgotten recipe here as well, just like with the kikion, where we don't really know what the psychedelic aspect of it is. Uh, maybe there is something to this brew created out of mistletoe uh, after performing the sacrifice. And what's really interesting, too, is uh, you see little tidbits of this even in modern times. There are some cultures which are now, uh, of course, Muslim in uh, in the Middle East, but they still retain some of these rituals from before that era, either through the intermingling of Indo-European tribes or uh, maybe through something that happened before the arrival of Islam in that area of the world. Uh, but uh, there are actually some rituals performed in some of these uh, places, in particular Iran and those eras uh, and Iraq in which uh, you know tribes still live in the mountains and uh you know they're they're somewhat modern like they have modern clothes and things like that but they still live a i guess you could say in terms of modern western culture somewhat a more primitive lifestyle uh you know sometimes maybe no running water no electricity things like that uh but they have access to clothing and 
yeah, things like this. And they there is a ritual that I've seen that's very interesting in which uh, somebody who's deemed a shaman, and very interestingly, oftentimes, these are seemingly uh, schizophrenic people uh, from the videos that I've seen and the information that I've gathered. Uh, schizophrenics or having some ability to see visions. And uh, when somebody feels like their family member has been cursed and that maybe they're about to die, they call on the shaman and the shaman performs this ritual that involves uh, shamanic drumming, of course, another key staple of the whole mystical experience. It involves chanting, of course it does, and dancing. And as part of this, they drink a brew that is partially um, comprised of uh, sheep's blood, usually, because these are sheep herders. They slaughter a sheep, and as part of the sacrifice and as part of this brew that uh, brings them into this ecstatic state, they drink the blood from the sheep's head. So very interesting to see these remnants uh, even in some more modern cultures. Now, for the Germanic tribes, so the Vikings and other Norse uh, cultures, you also have some interesting remnants of this sacred cow. Uh, particularly, uh, there's some Odin myths that relate to the sacred cow, so uh, check those out. But you have this idea of the Othumbla, the primordial cow. And uh, I found the etymology of this to be kind of interesting, uh, because for one, the, the Norse and, and northern Indo-European tribes uh, actually bred hornless cows. And this is literally what it means. A, a thumbler literally means a hornless cow. Uh, but there are some interesting etymological connections here to a few things. So uh, a thumbla is kind of a, a connection of two words, one or meaning a cow, and the other one uh, humbla meaning hornless. But uh, this, this term of or kind of has evolved into other things as well. So you may be familiar with uh, oryx, right, for example. This uh, now extinct, I believe, uh, type of cattle that was around until a couple hundred years ago, uh, oftentimes held sacred, uh, but very much a, a work animal. In, uh, and that's important in agrarian cultures, right? That's part of the reason why the cow is so important for the Indo-European uh, cultures and civilizations that arise out of that initial nugget in that uh, you know, these, are, these are agrarian cultures, and oftentimes they need some kind of beast of burden. And the cattle is the original beast of burden because they allow us to kind of sow the fields. And of course, that's how you arrive into certain ideas and metaphors of fertility. Also with the connection, of course, to the sun, because when the sun arises in Taurus on the spring equinox is when you know spring begins and life returns to the northern hemisphere and you can begin planting your crops. See, this is all intertwined and very interesting. Also, I find it interesting that the the Norse word for, for cattle, the old Norse, is, is R, because you have this idea of the augers. And uh, there's a combination of, of a couple words in auger. From the original root, so go look up the etymology. But uh, you know, the word or was also kind of a a word for riches. And going back to these African tribes that I discussed earlier that drink cow's blood as in their nomadic lifestyle, they also see the word for cow as meaning riches, because that's how you know that you're rich. The more cows you have, the richer you are, right? See, these are these are cultures that arise before the invention of money, right? So these are still bartering cultures. You might barter, you know, you go in and get your, when you're going to get married, 
you uh you give you know 10 cows as payment for your bride right now this might seem barbaric now but this is how things work because that's the only way to interchange goods and i'm not saying that women are goods uh you know you you do have um i guess dogmatic ideas that arise from these systems uh but they don't uh, originally mean these things right it's just the the meaning gets changed over time but the cow was also seen kind of a as a symbol of, of fate in relation to staring at the stars again this astrotheology symbolism and so if the or the word or means fate you and see how it eventually this revolves into the augurs, the the idea of, of prophetizing, and how uh, birds end up being involved because maybe it's easier to uh, you know throw down bird bones than it is to throw down cattle bones. And uh, you also see some interesting similarities here with throwing bones in terms of Chinese ideology, in terms of the I Ching, etc. So really interesting stuff. A lot of very close cultural connections around the world involving this idea of the sacred cattle. And you see how these ideas evolve over time. So what does this have to do with Zoroastrian tradition? Now, Zoroastrian tradition is very interesting. I'm not going to go deep into it right now because that's why we're going to be doing this series on Zoroastrianism. But, uh, you know, even the Zoroastrians and pre-Zoroastrians, so these are Iranian people, of course, Indo-Europeans, uh, involve the uh, people that comprise what we now know as Iran. In olden times, you might see this as Persian culture, and you have to be very careful when you talk about Persian culture, because Persian culture does not mean Indo-European. The Persians were a large empire, just like the Romans were, and so there were many different cultures that comprised Persian civilization. But even before the Persian empire would arise, uh, these people had certain beliefs as an Indo-European civilization. And one of them was both the idea of the sacred cow and the constellation of Taurus and the sacred twins in terms of the constellation of Gemini. So a lot of the mythology and, uh, and ritual and structure changed when, uh, when Zoroaster came around, also known as Zarathustra, uh, Zoroastros, many different names, Zardos. Uh, I was talking to uh, a couple of folks on the Discord over the weekend, and, uh, and this came up. And uh, it's, I always find it hilarious that uh, a terrible 70s sci-fi film, uh, Sean Connery film, Zardos, would have close connections to Zoroastrian tradition. But, of course, it does. Because the Zoroastrians influenced many different cultures all around the world. And this will become very evident as we dive deeper and deeper into this. But for now, let's stick to this idea of the sacred cow. And so for the Zoroastrians, you have these primordial twins, and it's not purely Zoroastrian. The primordial twins actually arise in all Indo-European mythology. Uh, you even see this in some of the Semitic peoples, which may have some close connections genealogically, uh, if not culturally, to the Indo-Europeans. Uh, you, know, you may be familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. It's the same kind of thing, these primordial twins. For the Indo-Europeans, it would be Manu and Yemo, and you see this transcribed in many different names throughout different Indo-European cultures. Uh, but the basic gist is this. Through, this is, of course, before time, before the creation of the world. You have the sacred twins, Manu and his twin Yemo, and Manu literally just means man, and Yemo literally just means twin. And they're traversing through the sky with their sacred cow. 
And if you look at the way that the constellations are put together, Gemini, of course, precedes the constellation of Taurus. And they're traveling through the cosmos, these two twins and their sacred cow. And, uh, and Manu decides to sacrifice his brother. And with the help of other gods, right, the, the sky god, which ends up becoming uh, co kind of a conglomeration of, of just the sky god and the storm god, uh, and then, of course, the sun and various other entities, they, uh, they sacrifice Yemu, the twin, and out of that forge the natural elements in which the universe can be created, and human beings are born out of the remains of Yemu's body. And, of course, they also sacrifice the primordial cow. And out of the primordial cow, you have the earth elements and the, the female goddess that arises out of that. And you have plants and other animals that come from the bones and the blood of the primordial cow. Now, this is really interesting, right? It may seem primitive, but this is the, the way that our mythology has developed. And if you look at some of the African cultures and Native American cultures, Aboriginal cultures, you'll see that the myth is actually very much the same in many respects in terms of the sacrifice of some sacred animal into the creation of various aspects of the world. Now, there are some interesting repercussions as a result of this first sacrifice, right? The, the creation of religion, you could say, in that Manu becomes the first priest, the first initiate of the mystery, the, the, the sacrificial, the, the guy that sacrificed the primordial man and the primordial cow in order to create the world. And so he becomes the first priest. And out of his brother Yimu, you have the priestly class, uh, the kingly class, the, the monarchy that arises out of that. And they arise out of his body, out of his chest and his arms. And then the commoners, the, the everyday folks, the workers, come out of the sexual organs and the legs. And of course, you have this very interesting metaphor because you are beginning to see the creation of the caste system, for example, which still persists in, in Indian culture and not so much in others, but this was kind of an integral part of Indo-European civilization. And, you know, we, we even see this kind of in, even into um, medieval Europe and, of course, through the colonization. This idea of the priestly class being at the top because, you know, they, they come out of the sacrifice of the head of the primordial man, and then below the head, of course, lies the torso, and that's where you get the royals. And then the low class comes from the legs, because that's the bottom part of the body. It's really interesting how you begin connecting these things, right? Begin to explain how these things work through the use of mythology. Absolutely fascinating. Now, this whole idea of sacrificing the twin and, and the sacred cow changes a little bit when, when Zoroaster comes in and uh, kind of tweaks the methodology a little bit. Uh, Manu himself becomes not just one person, but kind of a, a triune god, and we'll definitely dive into that when we get there, uh, in which you have kind of this divine man imagery that we've talked a lot about in the Gnostic ideology. And then you kind of get the priestly class and then just humanity itself. So uh, very interesting how that changes a little bit when you have a new belief system come in, right? And that's how you get a really successful belief system as you expand into other parts. You can't just directly impose what you believe. You have to begin adopting the ideology of the people that existed there so that they can kind of relate to what you're saying and maybe convert over. 
And uh, I'll talk a little bit about this when I do the Patreon episode on the Cult of Mithras, because that is key both in the show Raised by Wolves, but also in history itself with the history of the Roman Empire. Uh, because, uh, you know, the Emperor Julian actually tried to uh, get rid of Christianity when he came around and institute Mithras as the Jesus figure. So that'll be key. But you see this also within uh, Zoroastrian culture in in the Iranian region. Now, interestingly enough, they also uh, had a third brother, the third man, Trito, which literally means the third, poor guy. And uh, in, if you're familiar with Bible, of course, you have the third brother in Seth, and Seth kind of becomes the bearer of humanity, right? That's why you have within the Gnostics, you have the, the Sethian sect, because, uh, you know, Abel was killed, so he can't have children. Cain killed his brother, oddly enough, within the original Indo-European uh, ideology in terms to create the world. So really, he wouldn't be such a bad guy, right? In Indo-European culture, he becomes the priestly class. For the Semitic tribes, he's kind of seen as uh, the bad guy because he killed his brother and kind of introduced one of the, not the original, but one of the original sins in terms of murder. Uh, for the Indo-Europeans, it was very different. That's how the world was created. And so this third brother kind of becomes the uh, the ideal warrior, I guess, the primordial warrior, you can say, because Indo-European civilization is a warring civilization and that should be very obvious as you can witness from the past uh you know four or five thousand years of history uh, in particular the last uh you know, two thousand years of history we'll say three thousand years he does become the the primordial warrior the first warrior and uh, out of him arises all these uh serpent myths that uh, are very popular uh regardless of time and culture uh, obviously one of the obvious ones is uh, saint patrick who kills all the snakes in Ireland, even, even though there were never any snakes in Ireland. But uh, the reason for that is the serpent uh, implies this this feminine culture that came from before. Uh, the word in, in the European would be Nachi, which, of course, is where you get uh, words like the Naga in, uh, in Hindu mythology and in Buddhist mythology. So really interesting. And oddly enough, I've never seen anyone talk about this, this word Nachi is actually also the Indo-European root for the word negation. And if you see these written down, you'll you'll see that. It's very, very obvious. So it's N-G-H-I and negation. When you see these two together, you'll see that the close similarity. Uh, and so I find that interesting that uh, the word for serpent is also the word for negation. And we've, uh, we've dove quite a bit into negation through the Neti Neti method over uh, the past few weeks on the podcast. So that's an interesting thing to remember. Interestingly enough, also, Trito is the first person to partake in what has become known as Soma, the intoxicating drink uh, created through nobody knows what, presumably mushrooms, and uh, does so and, and gains the favor of the gods by achieving all these superpowers through the drinking of this intoxicant. So he actually goes into a cave in some stories, he just goes up to a mountain and becomes the primordial hero, uh, the first warrior, by going into the cave and drinking of this psychedelic drink that uh, allows him to see the world for what it is. So you can see here in this very early Indo-European mythology how basically all the myths that we have today arise out of those. And of course, the importance of the sacred cow lies at the head of all of it. So 
I hope you enjoyed that. This was actually a lot longer than I thought it would be, but I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know there's a lot of information here. By all means, go and look all this stuff up. Uh, I never hide any sources. Uh, everything that I say, I always do some research before I do so. So uh, check it out. Let me know if you find anything else that's interesting in relation to the Sacred Cow. And if you want to get more of these episodes, then sign up for the Patreon, patreon.com slash the alchemical mind, where for $1 a month, you can get uh, this exclusive symbology series. You'll also get the exclusive uh, living mindfulness course that's coming up uh, beginning next week. You'll get all the episodes early and uh, the ad free feed because now I've began doing advertising on the show. So I hope you enjoy it. You want to get in touch. Martin at the alchemicalmind.com is the email on Twitter. I love talking to people on Twitter at mindalchemical go to the website theacomicmind.com and you'll get links there to subscribe to the show and also a link to the discord where you can chat with other listeners and myself i'm in there quite a bit and it's always fun to chat with folks so that's going to be it for this episode thank you for listening and as always remember that you are it <laughs>